Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. Are you ready to go deep into the Word? I was expecting for a slightly more enthusiastic response, but I'll take that. Okay, we're in Hebrews chapter 6. We will cover the whole chapter, but I'm not going to read through the whole chapter to begin with. It could feel a little bit laborious. So instead, we'll read 12 verses together, and, um, and as I begin to unpack some points from the text, I'll wrap up with looking at the part that we don't read at the beginning. Clear as mud? Good. Just making sure the PowerPoint's up as well. Good. So, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and then produces vegetation is useful for whom it is cultivated, and they receive a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed, and in the end it will be burnt. Even though we are speaking of this way, dearly beloved friends, in your case we are confident of things that are better and pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust, he will not forget your work and the love that you have demonstrated in his name by serving the saints, and you continue to serve them. Now we desire that each of you demonstrate the same diligence for the, for the full assurance of your hope until the end, so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through pay, faith and through perseverance." The key word in that first few in those first few verses to look at is the word maturity. Do you know when you're young, you always want to be older. Well, it's the case of my three kids anyway. They assume that the richness of life is best expressed when they reach an age where they can go to bed whenever they want, they can eat whatever they want, they can play whatever computer game they want without me coming in as the arbitrator to decide whether it's, it's right or wrong. You, you often assume for, as a child that everything gets better as you get older. But actually, when you get older, life's just about when you can sneak in a nap or trying to reduce salt in your diet or make sure that you get your two liters of water in in a day. Actually, getting old and mature actually isn't all it's cracked up to be, or at least what you think it will be when you're a child. But for a kid, they always look up and they think that that is the better thing. I remember when I was 14, coming up to 15, I decided I wanted my first girlfriend. And I had my eye on this young lady who was in my geography class and my history class. It was kind of like I felt God was just setting it all up perfectly. Her name was Tina Brown. 
And this was the girl that I decided I was going to just brave it and I was going to ask her out. And she worked on a hot dog stall by the local Halfords. A very glamorous life she lived. <laughs> and so I prepared myself a whole week that on the Saturday I was going to go up and I was going to ask this girl out. And so my two wingmen, my friend Miles and my friend Chris at the time, they had helped me to maintain my, my commitment to what I said I would do at the weekend. And we worked towards it and eventually on Saturday... I arrived. I think I bought something token from Halfords, just so I had an excuse to kind of be in the area, you know, just carrying my Halfords bag, looking nonchalant, just like I ought to be there. And I walked up and I said, Tina, can I have a word with you outside? Very official, you know. She came outside. <laughs> She's probably like, who's this weirdo? That guy I'm trying to ignore in history and geography class. And I asked her out. And she said, no. And that was it. She said, I'm sorry. I just, no, I don't, I don't want to. And then she carried on serving hot dogs. And so I was left there with this. But I wasn't kind of finished there. So I sent in my friends to ask her why. I'd lost all confidence by this point. And they said, why do you not like my mate? And she said, I've just started dating a guy called Rob. He's 17 and he drives a car. And that was it. I was done. I was 14, about to turn 15. She had just kind of gone up a couple of gears and decided that the older man, the age 17, with access to your own car, you could go through a drive through McDonald's together in your courtship. I had a push bike. There's no way I could kind of match this guy, Rob, for maturity. And that's the thing. When you're younger, you kind of look up to something that you think, if I can just achieve that, then I've made it. And at that point, at the age of 14, nearly 15, it was driving a car. Now, when I was about to say Paul then. We don't know it's Paul who was teaching these, this Hebrew community. It could have been a few other people. If you want to ask me my opinion on who it is, please see me afterwards. But I think it could have been a woman there. I'm going to throw that out there. So, the writer of Hebrews begins there, speak to this chapter to the, to the audience there, basically saying that I want to go on and teach you some stuff about maturity. I want to tell you some stuff that's really a little bit deeper that's going to stretch you a little bit more. It's going to take you further in your faith. It's going to be something that's going to cause you to grow up. So you start to read through the chapter and you think, what is it that this writer is going to say to the audience? But when you read through the flow of the content of chapter 6, it's the deep stuff that actually starts in chapter 7 when the writer gets onto this enigmatic figure called Melchizedek. And the writer uses the rest of the chapter to kind of relay some foundational stuff, kind of like they're saying, you can go for the maturity stuff, we can go for the deeper stuff, we can reach for that, and we're going to do that in a minute. But before we get onto that, there's just a couple more basic things I need to drill home to you. Kind of like taking that driving the car analogy of that person who I was at 14, 15, thinking I wanted to be 17, it's kind of like if 17 was the maturity and I was 14, the writer's saying here, you, you can get in a car and try and drive it, but if your feet can't reach the pedals, you're not going to get very far. And so the writer wants the audience to know that their feet reach the pedals. They've grown, they've matured enough to actually get on with the deeper stuff. 
And that's the thing in the Christian life. Sometimes we can go to a conference like Lucas has been to this week, this AOG conference, and maybe a couple more people in the room too, and you get all of this really kind of uh, uh, intense stuff about how we can kind of take the nation for Jesus, how we can do some incredible stuff, and that's true. But we also mustn't forget to do the basics along the way. We need to still kind of grind out the, the foundational stuff that we need to be getting on with all the time so that as we're reaching for the mature stuff, the deeper stuff, the, the higher brow stuff, that we're still maintaining the basics of the Christian life. So let me just give you three things now that I think that the writer goes on to say during these verses, and um, I've summed them up for a heading that has to do with maturity. So we're going to have the first slide up, please. A mature Christian is an unwavering one. Let's read these verses again, verses 15 to 19, because they have been a little bit of a problem to some people as they've read them. It's unnecessarily spooked them about the security of their salvation. Let's look at this. It says, And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received... Oh, hang on. I'm on the wrong page. Look at that. Slick. There we go. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to a public disgrace. As you read through the chapter, this bit comes straight after the writer says they want to go on to stuff about maturity. They go back to this very basic principle that if you're going to start a walk with Jesus, you've got to maintain a walk with Jesus. A successful walk with Jesus is one that stays the course and isn't like the hokey-cokey one foot in and one foot out. Now, the context here for this particular congregation is that they were under some persecution at the time. Many of them, we assume, were part of a Jewish community. That's why it's called to the Hebrews. And it has a lot of Jewish scripture in there, Jewish ideas, Jewish theology. But some of them were in danger of turning their back on their new Christian faith. Or some people think they weren't quite over the line and they may never get they were in danger of not coming fully into a saving knowledge of Jesus. But either way, there was a potential for them to turn away from Jesus. And they use this language there, the writer uses this language of re-crucifying the Son of God. What does that mean? I used to hear sermons on the fact that if you turned away from Jesus, you can't come back to him because... To do so would be to crucify Jesus all over again. But I think actually as you read the flow of the verse and the content and the way that the language is structured, what the writer is saying is actually as you turn away from Jesus, it's that turning away which is the re-crucifying of Jesus. What does that mean? I think it means this. I think it means that as you turn away from Jesus fully and completely, like you've turned your back on him, in your own heart you've kind of gone dead to the Christian faith, that you're just treating him like some guy who died on a cross again. You've lost that sense that he is the resurrected Son of God whose testimony and witness and reputation was vindicated by the resurrection. 
You, some people, they came to him, there's this, there's the Hebrew community, they would have seen this guy dying on the cross, it would have been an offense to them, but the gospel would have called them to accept that this death was necessary for their eternal salvation. It was the substitute death that they deserved. Instead of taking goats and animals and cows and calves to the altar, Jesus sent himself to the altar, which was the cross. And actually, by turning away from Jesus, they were just parking him back there. Because we know that Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He went into the tomb. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. And that was a witness to the validity of the gospel. So actually, turning their back on Jesus, that was the act of putting him back on the cross. Like he was just some dying prophet who didn't quite succeed at bringing in the kingdom of God. So what that means for us, I believe, in this, in practical terms, that there is a danger that when we walk with Jesus through difficult moments, that we attempted to turn our back on him and treat him not like the son of God that he is, not like the resurrected son of God that he is, but just some guy we know a story about who died on a cross. But the call for the Christian faith is to maintain that conviction that we serve a living Savior. That we serve the risen Son of God. That that Jesus who went into the tomb, who was resurrected three days later and was brought out in victorious glory, that is the Jesus we serve. And for many people, they have lost the freshness and the beauty of that message. And Jesus has become for them to some guy who died on a cross that they choose not to think about anymore. And this was the challenge for this group here. So in order for them to go on to maturity, the writer needs to know that they were first going to remember that no matter what information they were going to get about a Melchizedek and about the way that the gospel fulfills all of this amazing stuff that they'd read about in the Hebrew scriptures that the first thing they need to make sure they do was they needed to maintain a consistent faith. The second thing that they need to do for this foundation of maturity is in verses 9 to 11. I'll read that again. If you can have the next slide up, please. The writer says, Even though we're speaking in this way, dearly loved friends, in your case we are confident um, of things that are better and pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end. So after this warning to make sure that the readers were going to stay the course, they were going to stick it out, they weren't going to turn their back on Jesus... He congr- or she, potentially, congratulates them on the fact that they were still serving one another. And that's another foundational thing that we must maintain if we're to go on and stay in a place of maturity, is we never stop serving one another. You never graduate from serving one another. You never become so long standing in the faith You never exist and fellowship in a church so long that you move beyond the command from Jesus to love and to serve one another. Service is one of God's love languages. 
There's a guy called Gary Chapman who's a Christian therapist. Uh, he's one of the f- few to kind of make it mainstream with some of, it, some of his books. But he wrote a book called The Five Love Languages, and it was about the way that we need to learn to love one another in relationships. It was particularly in the context of romantic relationships, but the same applies to some degree in friendships as well. He had five love languages. Time, receiving gifts, physical touch, words of affirmation, and acts of service. And I have done this love language test with my wife. I think we've done it a couple of times in alpha marriage courses. And acts of service is my lowest scoring act of love. I want gifts. (laughs) It's like, don't bring me a cup of tea. I'll get that myself. Go to the Argos catalog and pick something nice. That's kind of how I work. And I think God has a love language too. And sometimes we think, oh, we can bring him a gift. We bring our tithes and we bring our offerings. That's good. And that is very good. Lucas is here. He will give us a second amen for that one. But there are other ways to love God as well. And serving one another is a key component of that. To the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaking to this local congregation in Ephesus. At least that's the way I see it. He says many good things about this church in Ephesus, about what they're doing. But he says, I've got one thing that there's a bit of a problem for you. He He says, you've forsaken your first love. Now, many, many times, that has been interpreted as people falling out of love with God. And maybe from that, the application would be to kind of put a Hillsongs or a Bethel album on. And have, you know, a holy 10 minutes with Jesus just saying, I love you, I love you. And then hoping that that kind of keeps you guarded against that problem for the church in Ephesus. But I don't think that is what that passage in Revelation to the church in Ephesus means. In fact, kind of that word first love which appears in the NIV is is, is a term that's not so antiquated that you can imagine it being used in the first century. In fact, I think the, the, the older translations that certainly I've got, the ESV, it says you have forsaken the love that you had at first. For whom? Love for whom? Actually, if we believe that it's John who is sharing this information with people and you read about the people that he was writing to in his epistles, there is some commands in there that no greater ha- love has this for anyone than they lay down their life for their friends for one another. I believe that the love that the church in Ephesus had forsaken was not so much a love for God. They weren't like coming into their services and going, oh man, I'm really indifferent towards this Jesus guy now. It was that foundational act of love and service and laying down their lives for one another, which I think Jesus had noticed was absent. And so if that's true and my understanding is correct, then it kind of comes together to show that Jesus wants us to always make sure that no matter how high we want to reach in our Christian faith, no matter how mature that we want to be in our Christian faith, we never move beyond acts of service. And the final point is this. I have the final slide up. This is where we get to the bit of the text that we didn't read at the beginning. Hebrews 6, 15 to 19. A mature Christian is an anchored one. So the writer goes on to say, And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. 
For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. They've not had dispute amongst kids, clearly, the people who wrote this. (laughs) Because there are lots of times your kids say, I swear, and it's absolute lies. Because God wanted to show his unchanging purpose even more clearly to the heirs of his promise. He guaranteed it with an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And he enters through the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. How does being anchored in the promises of God help build that foundation for maturity? I have a friend of mine who has recently been offered a job as a lecturer at a university, a lecturer in philosophy. We have lots of interesting conversations over the phone about the subjects he's teaching. But he mentioned to me a couple of weeks ago that he's currently struggling with anxiety. And I thought that now he'd kind of got this position in a faculty in a university, in the University of York, that he would be kind of content and satisfied now because he had attained the the kind of plan that he'd set out for himself some years ago, which was to get a role within a university teaching the subject that he loves. But he's just exchanged one anxiety for another. The anxiety he originally had was that he would never get the job that he'd always wanted. But then once he'd got the job that he always wanted, he was anxious that he was just going to screw it up and mess it up and whether the kids would like him, and whether he'd go to his next review and the faculty would decide that he's rubbish. He'd just exchange the anxiety for what he wanted to an anxiety that he would lose what he got. And so for him, as he was maturing through his career path, as he was kind of setting forth in front of him what he wanted to achieve, unless he had found an anchor for his soul in Jesus, he would always be anxious for something because his happiness would be contingent on the approval of everybody else. He couldn't enjoy the maturing process that he was going through as long as he was nervous that people wouldn't like him and they wouldn't validate him in what he was doing. And I, can, I think that can sometimes translate even into church leadership. Like, Will people like the vision that I've got for 2024? Are the ties on their way up or on their way down? Are people kind of nodding in my sermons or are they sleeping in my sermons? So far, everyone in here is awake. That's a good sign. Now, it's not as if those things aren't important, but if we make them the thing that is most important, we're forever at sea, drifting around, up and down, tossed backwards and forwards on a wave of opinion or disgruntlement, and we're upset by this person saying this thing, or we're buoyed and happy and excited because someone else says something else. But I believe the call to maturity requires somebody whose soul is anchored in such a way that it would be naive to say that you wouldn't be up and down at certain times, but you are conscious that there is an anchor point in your soul that you know that whatever happens, that Jesus loves you, Jesus has called you, and he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. 
Because unless you've got that as that foundational thing, you're going to be forever adrift, and then you will just be buffeting up against all of the different waves of opinion that come your way. So a mature faith needs to be a consistent one, and a mature faith also needs to be an anchored one and a serving one. And this is the thing that I believe the writer is setting the church up for. Just before they turn the corner in chapter 7 and start talking to them about Melchizedek. I don't know who's got that in the sermon series, but it will be a good one. But as you listen to stuff about Melchizedek and other stuff in Hebrews, I would echo what the writer is saying here, that don't, you must never forget the basics. Because actually they're more important for you than you potentially realize. That's the stuff that will keep you going. As you're looking further, as you're digging deeper, as you're reaching higher, as you're stretching yourself to, to try and understand the, the full length and breadth of your Christianity, that with all of that amazing search and journey that God can take you on, that serving and staying anchored in God's promises and making sure that you never turn your back on Jesus, that you just keep grinding it out, following him, it will set you up for great success. Amen? Let's pray. Yeah, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word. It calls us to stay the course, to finish the race, to fight the good fight, to keep following you, our risen Savior. We don't follow a guy who claimed great things and just died on a cross. We follow the risen Son of God, vindicated through the resurrection, who stands with us through thick and thin and will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, this truth anchors us it grounds us. It roots us in a way, Lord God, that helps us to make life possible in a way that we can keep our heads up and keep looking ahead. God, I, help, I pray you help us to do that. I pray you help us to serve with a greater diligence and commitment, with a greater level of sacrifice, that we won't lose that sense of the love that we had at first, that love of Jesus shining through us to others in the way that we lay down our lives for them. Help us to love others like you have loved us, I pray, that we will grow up to be that mature Christian community that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarranty.com.